Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to Ty's Tech Line. I'm your host, Tyler Harrington, and thank you so much for being here. Now, this episode is a new format we're trying out. It is basically what I'm calling a deep dive into a YouTube video topic. So if you missed the announcement, we are bringing back the YouTube channel. We renamed it as Ty's Tech Line. And as such, we're gonna be creating more and more content on the YouTube channel with my goal is to do it on a weekly basis. However, when it comes to YouTube videos and things like that, they are not always as long or as in-depth as sometimes I would like to go into a topic. And this past week is a great example. Uh, we have a video out all about ND filters. So right off the bat, if you haven't seen the video, head over to the YouTube channel. It's just youtube.com slash the Harrington's and watch the video about ND filters. And it's actually a 20 minute long video, partially because there's an unboxing at the end of a really cool product that we got sent for free from Polar Pro. It is their Basecamp matte box system. Again, check out the video for that. I'm not going to talk about that too much here on the podcast because uh, that's definitely more of a visual experience. So go check out the video if you want to know more about that. But that was a 20 minute long YouTube video. And I feel like I barely got to scratch the surface on all the things I wanted to talk about regarding ND filters and things like that. So this is going to be sort of like your show after the show, a little bit deeper dive into basically the same thing we talked about in the YouTube video, just in a little bit longer form here on the podcast so I can just sort of go into all of the different thoughts and all of the different depths of my brain regarding these topics. So hopefully you guys find these interesting. If you do, let me know for sure. Uh, shoot me a message on Instagram at Tyler Harrington if you are enjoying this type of a recap, deep dive, YouTube content sort of a thing. But uh, yeah, so let's just jump into it. So again, ND filters. I am very, very passionate about ND filters. I love shooting with my C100s. And one of the main reasons that I love shooting with the C100 so much, and one of the biggest things that's prevented me from switching to a smaller camera for weddings, honestly really is the fact that the C100 has built-in ND filters. And it's super easy just to roll a little switch on the side of the camera, and I have three different types of ND that are built into the body of the camera. And it's one of those things where if you don't have it, and you're not used to using it, it's not really that big of a deal, or you may not know what you're missing. But once you have it and you get used to working with ND filters on a regular basis, for me anyway, it's really, really, really hard for me to fathom going back to a camera full time that doesn't have an ND filter. Some people might tell me that I'm just being crazy or that, you know, it doesn't really matter. Brides can't tell a difference between, you know, a proper shutter speed and not, you know, a cranked shutter speed and all those different things. But honestly, I mean, I don't know. Just for me personally, I think that shooting at a proper shutter speed makes a huge difference. And if you go again, if you go watch the video, I give uh, even it's just one really simple example of me waving my hands around. But to me, the difference between, you know, one three hundredth of a second shutter and one forty eighth second shutter is huge. And to me, it's very, very obvious. I know people out there are like, oh, you can't really tell a difference. It doesn't really matter, blah, blah, blah. But I, I feel like I can tell and I feel like it just gives a completely different look and feel to the footage. So that's why I love ND filters. So, okay. So what I want to talk about in more in depth that I didn't really feel like I got to go into really is shutter speed. And maybe I'll make an entire video about this. I don't know. But I think that when we're talking about ND filters, what we're really talking about is shutter speed and motion blur. Because the only reason why you need to use an ND filter is so that you can keep that proper shutter speed. Because if it wasn't, if it didn't matter, if your shutter speed didn't matter and you didn't care about what you're 
shutter speed was in your shooting video, then yeah, you don't need an ND filter. You would just set your ISO to whatever you need it to be. You would set your aperture to whatever you wanted. And then you just crank your shutter, just like photographers do, to as high as it needs to go and it wouldn't really matter. But I kind of want to talk a little bit about, I don't know, maybe the, the science behind why it matters. Because I don't know about you, but the way that my brain works, I love to know why rules exist, not just like what the rule is. I'm a type one on the Enneagram, so I'm very much a rule follower, but I'm also very, very logical. So if there's a rule, but it's an illogical rule in my brain, I have a really hard time following it. So I like to know kind of the why behind everything. So that way, if I do need to break the rule, I know why. I don't like just blindly following rules. So the the shutter speed rule we talked about in the video is that your shutter speed should always be double your frame rate. So if you're shooting at 24 frames per second, your shutter speed should be 1 48th of a second. If you're shooting at 60 frames per second, your shutter speed should be 1 120th of a second, right? It's pretty simple math. Then you, then, you know, my brain goes to the next question, which is, okay, well, why, why is that the rule? And I was doing a little bit of research for this. And again, I ended up cutting a lot of this detail out of the YouTube video because it ended up getting too long and I don't know how much people have to care about it. But if you're a podcast listener, I'm going to assume that you care. So we're going to talk about it. So basically the way to think about this from a photography standpoint is I think it's the easiest way to kind of relate the two because I don't know about you, but I started in photography and when I think about shutter speed, I'm primarily to think in terms of photography. So if you're, you know, when you're shooting photos, if you're trying to slow motion down, you want a really fast shutter speed. So a really high number. So if you're shooting sports, you know, one, 1,200th of a second is sort of like your baseline and it goes up from there. And the same thing, if you want to add motion blur, you have you shoot with a slower shutter speed. And basically what's happening when you when you take a photo and you click the shutter, there is a set of doors that are in front of your sensor. And when you, you're setting your shutter speed, essentially what you're controlling is the doors move from left to right. So the one side of the door will slide open, exposing the sensor to light. And then the other side will come behind it and shut blocking the light from the sensor. And when we're talking about shutter speed, the only thing that's controlling is the amount of time that that door opens before it shuts again. So at 1 30th of a second, the doors are open for 1 30th of a second and then shut again. If you think of your shutter speed was two seconds, you know, it open 1 1000, 2 1000, and then it would shut again. And essentially what that means is that anything that happens during the time that the doors are open will be captured on your sensor. Any sort of movement, any sort of light changing, literally anything that happens during that time is going to be reflected and captured on your image sensor. So that's why if you're, you see those photos of car streaks, like you know a highway in LA and there's like the big red streak, essentially what that is, it's a 30 or 45 second long exposure. So the doors open for 30 seconds and then all those cars are moving during that 30 seconds. So all of that motion, all of that movement is captured on that time and then it shuts again. So, but then we start thinking in terms of fractions of a second, right? That's because, that's why the faster your shutter speed is, you know, one fifteen hundredth of a second, because that's faster than uh, humans can move and all those sorts of things, right? So we take that general understanding of what shutter speed is, and we understand that things that are moving within that time frame are going to create motion blur. It's always going to be captured, and then we start applying that to video. So how do those two things relate? Well, when you are shooting video. Essentially, all you're shooting is however many, whatever your frame rate is. So let's say 20, shooting 24 
1080p, 24 frames per second, that means that your camera is capturing 24 still images every single second. Okay, that's all that it is. All that a video is is a bunch of still images that are just played back together at a very specific speed that gives you this sense of motion. If that's what's happening every single second, each one of those images keeps the same rule in terms of shutter speed and things like that that you would have for photography, more or less. The reason why motion blur is important is because in order for it to look natural and the way that our eye sees, we always see a little bit of motion blur. So a good way to kind of test this is if you stare at a ceiling fan, when you see is you kind of see a big circle. You don't see the individual blades moving around. You see kind of just like a circular blur. And that is that is motion blur, right? But if you kind of turn your head as the blades ground or you focus on just one of the blades and you kind of move your head as it's going around, you can see those individual blades. And essentially what you're doing is you're kind of counteracting the motion blur by moving your head in sync with the way that it's spinning. So the same thing happens in your camera. So when you're shooting at the proper shutter speed, you know, double your frame rate, you're allowing there to be a little bit of motion blur in every single frame. And what that does is when you play them back sequentially, that motion blur blurs from one frame to the next frame to the next frame to the next frame. And it gives you this sense of smooth motion and this sort of smooth transfer. And it's very natural to what your eye sees. However, when you start to crank your shutter speed up really high, what you're doing is you're removing that motion blur. So instead of having 24 little frames that have a little bit of motion blur that kind of blur that go from one to the next to the next to the next, each one is frozen in time. So when you freeze it in time, essentially a little bit of time passes between that frame and the next frame because you're slowing it down more than the time needed. This is so hard to explain with audio, but I hope I'm doing a good job. So basically what you're getting is you're getting frozen motion in one frame, and then in the next frame, you're getting frozen motion again, and there's a teeny little bit of time that has passed. It's again, this is like very, 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 very small increments of time, but basically you're going from one frozen image to another frozen image to another frozen image, and instead of having that smooth motion in between where you can see every single part of that frame, you're getting a, just a tiny little sliver of it and then a tiny sliver of the next and a tiny sliver of the next. And when you play them all back and back together, instead of having that really smooth motion between them, you're getting, it's more jarring and you're essentially jumping from frame to frame to frame to frame to frame and it doesn't look very natural. So again, if you go watch the YouTube video, you can see this very clearly as I'm just waving my hands at one three hundredth of a second, you can see that they just look kind of choppy. Again, that's because they're being frozen in time from frame to frame to frame to frame. And when you play it back, it just doesn't look quite right. But when you look at it at 24 frames per second, it looks and feels very natural. And then when I put the still in there to pause it, you can see that in the, at one three hundredth of a second, my hand is pretty much clear. Again, one three hundredth isn't very, isn't a super high shutter speed. So there's a teeny little bit of motion blur, but it's much, much, much less compared to the motion blur in my hand at one um, 48th of a second, you know, the proper shutter speed. And then the reason why your shutter speed has to increase as the number of frames increases is because basically the duration of each frame, if you're shooting 60 frames in each second, each frame is that much shorter. So the amount of time that you need to uh, shutter to be open to have the natural blur between the different frames is that much less. So again, that's why there's a very simple rule. It's just it's just double. So hopefully that all kind of makes sense. Again, it's kind of hard to describe this uh, on a podcast because it's a very visual thing. But I think that understanding that concept of what's actually happening, this motion blur occurring between all the different frames and the result being this kind of choppy look 
is going to be really important in terms of deciding what's going to be happening. Because again, I, in the video, I was shooting inside with my light at a very low power and that was the only light source. But if you're outside shooting on a wedding day in the super bright sun, or even just if I had opened up all the windows, I would need even more of an ND to counteract that, or you'd have to raise your shutter speed that much higher. So if you're talking about shutter speeds at like one one thousandth of a second or, or higher than that, you start to really, really, really freeze the motion. And the higher that shutter speed is, the more of more time is passing between each individual shot, each individual frame, and the choppier that it's going to look. Again, and the, the, the reason why this is also important to notice to know is because if something is static and there's not a lot of motion, yeah, you're right. You're not going to really be able to tell as easily that there's something off, right? If you, again, the best example of this is if you ever look up some videos of people shooting water, right? So water has a lot of natural motion to it, but if you freeze it, you can see the individual droplets. So that's a, that, that, or the ceiling fan situation are really obvious ways where there's a ton of motion. So yes, there are times where you can get away with a high shutter speed and it be much less noticeable because there's less like fast motion if people are moving slowly, even people walking to a certain extent, you can get away with it. And to be honest with you, for years, we shot with our C100s and then we had an A6300 that we were shooting with as our gimbal camera and we never used an ND filter on that to be you know, fully transparent. But I was using that for, I would say, you know, 10% of the shots were coming from that gimbal in a wedding day, if even that. And again, I'm shooting usually pretty wide and there's not a ton of really fast motion. So again, I understand people out there who don't use ND filters and they're like, oh, you can't really tell. Cause yeah, there's some scenarios where you can't tell. And a lot of the times those gimbal shots that I was shooting, even if I put them right next to the C100 that had perfect motion blur, you know, you, you probably couldn't really tell, but it makes me feel better. And I, if I have the option to shoot with an ND filter, I'm always going to choose that, especially in slow-mo, especially when you are shooting something maybe that's like a commercial commercial shoot, something where you have a lot more control, those types of things. I am always, always going to go towards an ND filter if possible, which is one of the reasons why I'm really excited about that matte box that they sent me, the Basecamp matte box, because that actually opens up a lot of possibilities for me shooting other types of cameras. Um, you know, black magic cinema pocket camera I mentioned, and a lot of those different types of cameras that are or even like, you know, the uh, Panasonic S1 or the GH5 or any of those cameras that are really, you know, incredible in terms of the image quality they can produce. But you need I would want to have an ND filter on it. So that is a is a cool option that hopefully gives you a little bit of insight into the shutter speed thing and like why that's so important. And then the other thing I want to talk about is something that actually came up on my Instagram. I got a couple of people commenting on my uh, Instagram TV video that I posted and that is talking about ISO because I say in the video that, um, you know, 850 is the native ISO for my C100. So you can lower the ISO down to 320, but I, oh, I say in the video that I prefer to shoot at 850 because that's the native ISO for the camera. And I got some comments saying, well, why does it matter? Like you can lower your ISO or I've always actually heard prior to recently that, you know, the lower the ISO, the better shooting a hundred ISO is the best way to go. You know, low ISO is high quality, high ISO is more grain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so somebody asked me this question and asked if I had any resources or as to where I was getting that basis, that 850 is the best place to shoot. And I realized that I had never really researched it very carefully. I, uh, I kind of just, I had heard and I knew about native ISO and I knew the 850 was a native ISO for the C100 and that that was the best image quality, but I had never really done a ton of research 
into it. So I was asked a question in my comments. So I just kind of read, I did a little bit of research and I want to read what I found. So the question was from Analog Madams on Instagram. And he was basically saying, hey, I can't find any info that an ISO of 800 is better than shooting at 400 or 200. Do you have any links to that? Thanks. So I said, well, not really. So I started doing a little bit of research and I found a blog post. Basically, this is what it said. It says, Native ISO is the baseline setting your camera is set at to achieve the most detail out of your image. Going above or below this setting will digitally unamplify or amplify the sensor sensitivity to light it is capturing. So that to me was a really perfect definition of what's going on in your camera and what that means. Because again, I'd always heard and always, I used to tell people shoot lower ISOs, it's, it's better quality, blah, blah, blah. But this is essentially saying that that's not true. And it makes sense because I remember I used to shoot photos all the time at 100 ISO and be like, man, these don't look nearly as good. Sometimes I'll shoot them at, you know, like 500, 800, whatever. And I feel like those sometimes look better and I couldn't figure that out why. And this, this is why, because the sensor is set to a specific sensitivity and then anything below that, so in my, again, in my case, the C100, it's 850. Anything below 850, it's basically digitally darkening the image by reducing amplification. So it's, but it's art, it's going to add artifacting and it's not going to be, you know, the sweet spot. So then I started looking, I was looking something for something specific regarding the C100. And I found this really interesting chart. Again, go check out my Instagram. I'm going to um, save it to my story highlights if you want to see this. But basically what it's, it's showing is it's showing all the different ISO options for the C100 starting at 850 and then going up to 80,000 and down to 320. And it's a little chart that shows the dynamic range in the shadows and the dynamic range in the highlights and it's measured in stops. It has the gain on here and then the um, SN ratio, which is the sensitivity to noise ratio. So basically at 850, the gain is 2.5 decibels it has 5.3 stops of sh in the highlights and 6.7 stops in the shadows of dynamic range, okay, at 850. So that's the baseline. And then what's really interesting is if you go down to 320, which again, most people would have thought, I, you know, or I used to think that that would be a better quality. What it shows here is that instead of getting 5.3 stops of dynamic range in the highlights, you're only getting 3.9 stops of dynamic range in your highlights at 320 ISO. However, you go from 6.7 stops of dynamic range in the shadows to 8.1 stops of dynamic range in the shadows at 320. So I don't. I just thought this really this interesting. And um, what's what's also interesting is that the high, even up at 80,000 ISO, it has the same amount of dynamic range in the highlights and in the shadows. But as you go down, that gets reduced. So again, go go check that chart out if you want to see it. It's on my Instagram stories. I just thought that was really really interesting and something I also wanted to cover because yes, it is true. If you are in a pinch and you need to, yeah, you should lower your ISO. If you're shooting with a DSLR or any, you know, any camera really, and you want to lower your ISO down to a hundred, go for it. You know, it's at the end of the day, it's not going to be that big of a deal, but it is good to know that yes, you're technically losing some dynamic range and you're introducing a little bit of potential noise into your shot. And that is, and that there's some digital de-amplification happening on your sensor. It's just good to know that. Is it going to be the end of the world? Is it going to be a terrible looking shot? No, of course not. In terms of ND filters, it's still not going to really matter because even if you're at 100 ISO, if you want to shoot at 2.2, 
most of the time when you're outside, that's still going to require you to bump your shutter speed up unless you use an ND filter. So that's just something I thought was really interesting to kind of dive into and talk about a little bit was this whole ISO thing. I'm thankful that he, you know, he asked me those questions and he challenged me on it because I'd always known that. I just had never really done the research. So hopefully you find that interesting because I found that super, super interesting. If you want to find the native ISO of your camera you should just you can google it i found some interesting information about like the 5d series and how um it it didn't really say what the native iso was but it was saying that there's certain isos that are cleaner than others and things like that you hear about this talked about a lot actually in like the panasonic cameras for example like the new s1 has and maybe it's the gh5s it has dual native isos which is where you probably heard this talked about a lot so basically you can switch between two different native iso settings so you can have the native iso i think it was 800 and then the other one is 2500 so essentially what that means is that the sensor is tuned to those two different ISO settings so that you'll get a really clean image at eight at 800, but you'll also get a really clean image at 2500, which is a really, really cool feature because then that way you can set your, if you're shooting in, the, in a dark situation and you set your ISO to 2500, you're actually getting, again, all the dynamic range and a really clean signal. I don't know how they do that. I don't know the science and the technology that goes into that, but that is an option that they have on those Panasonic cameras. So that's pretty cool to think about, but hopefully uh, that gives you a little insight into uh, into the whole ISO situation. But yeah, so on a wedding day, this is kind of how my brain works. Again, I demonstrate this a little bit in the video, but basically what I'm thinking about, and the reason why I love shooting with the C100 is because it actually eliminates a lot of the variables in terms of getting exposure, and I don't really have to think about very much. So basically I set my shutter speed to 1 48th of a second, and I'm actually getting ready to switch it over to, um, instead of being shutter speed, I'm getting ready to, shut it to set it to shutter angle, because basically what you can do on the C100 is you can set it so that it's always at 180 degree shutter rule. So that even if I change my frame rate, I that way I don't have to worry about changing my shutter speed because I've had a few times where I've switched to 60 frames per second and then I just forgot to uh, change my shutter speed and then I shoot a bunch of footage and then it looks kind of weird because uh, the shutter speed's not quite right. So if you switch it to shutter angle, it'll basically always be right and you can't really mess it up. So I really want to think about two different variables and it kind of depends on if we're inside or outside. So if I'm outside, Again, ISO set to 850, shutter speed set to 180 degree rule. And then the only two variables I have is gonna be my aperture or my ND filter. If I'm inside, all right, I'm not gonna be using an ND filter. So the only two variables I'm really looking at are gonna be my aperture. And in this case, my ISO, because when you're inside, you're gonna to have to raise your ISO to compensate. So when I'm outside and I'm looking at a scene, essentially what I'm gonna do is I'm going to set my aperture to kind of basically where I want it, which normally is like 2.2. 2.2 is sort of my sweet spot for where I love to shoot um, for most, almost everything. So I set my aperture to 2.2 and then I kind of look at the scene. Okay, so then I'll add one ND. Okay, that's not enough. I'll add a second ND. And then here's where I usually run into, the, the only downside to using the NDDs like this in different stops is that you it's a really big jump from one to the next. So sometimes you kind of end up in between ND filters. I'll add that second ND and then maybe I'm a little bit too dark. So then I'll, you know, maybe I'll jump down to 
then at this point it's a little bit of a game and I'll kind of jump down to 2.0, 1.8 and then I'll see, okay, am I getting close to the right exposure? If I have to go below 1.8, depending on the lens that I'm using, what I'll usually do then is I'll say, okay, this ND is too much. I'll go down once. So I'll jump down one ND and then I'll have to raise my aperture up. So again, I go back to 2.2 and then I'll jump up to like 2.5, 2.8, even if I have to jump up to like 3.2, I would much rather shoot with a little bit of extra depth of field um, and to get the right exposure than to add an extra ND and have to go all the way down to like 1.4, 1.2. Because sometimes I do shoot at 1.2 and I love the look of that, but it has to be a very specific scenario and I have to know that the person's not gonna be moving, it's not a crucial shot, it's something that I can do a couple different times, it's portrait, something like that where there's a lot of repetition. Then yeah, sometimes I'll shoot at 1.2 just because I love the way that it looks. But if it's something, most anything else, I don't wanna shoot getting into the dress at 1.2. That's just too shallow and it just makes me nervous. I will always err on the side of going up on my aperture. So coming down one ND and going up to 2.8, 3.2. And that's just how my brain is thinking all day long. So again, every time I walk into a new scenario, I'm just kind of getting to the getting in the range of the right ND and then adjusting my aperture so the exposure looks good and then I'm rolling. And that's all I have to think about. When I'm inside, it's essentially the same thing except the opposite. So in, in this case, usually it's because I'm outside, we have an abundance of light. Inside, we have a lack of light. So inside, I'm not thinking about NDs at all. Um, I'm basically gonna do the same thing where I set my aperture to wherever I want it and usually like 2.2 and then I'm raising up my ISO until I get to the exposure that I want. And that's all I have to really think about. The only time I ever have to really change this would be if I'm raising my ISO so high, if it's a really dark scene, maybe I need to come down on my aperture, like go from 2.2 to 2.0 or 1.8 and so I don't have to jump above like 8,000. But the ranges, my ranges I'm always looking at is I'd like to stay aperture wise between 1.8 and 2.8. That's kind of my, that's kind of my sweet spot. And I'll go higher if I have to, especially outside F, up to really about like F4, 4.5 is kind of like my limit as high as I want to go just for my shooting style. And then inside ISO wise, I'm, the highest I'm willing to push my C100 is 8,000 ISO. Um, and even I do the same thing with my, um, with my EOS R, you know, I'm willing to shoot up to like 6,400 is where I start really, okay, let's let's reevaluate the situation here. Maybe I need a different lens, 8,000 kind of max. And then if it's a dire, dire, dire situation, like I had one time they started doing the cake cutting, they didn't tell me, it just started happening. The light was on the dance floor, like plugged in. I, they were getting, doing the cake cutting nowhere near the light. So I just had to crank my ISO up to like 10,000, roll my uh, shutter, my aperture down to 1.4 and just roll. And again, getting a really good exposure in camera is much better than trying to preserve all those different things and have a dark image that you're trying to brighten in post. So it's better to do those things in camera, just get the shot. You can always denoise it or whatever later, but if you underexpose it, and you're trying to bring that back in post, you're gonna be in big trouble. So that's how my brain works. That's what I'm thinking about. And that's kind of how I use ND filters on the day of, especially when shooting with my C100s. When it comes to my EOS R, I mentioned the little built-in ND filter adapter thing. And that thing is really awesome. Um, I will say that even the, just the weight of that, the little ND filter in that adapter does throw off the weight of my gimbal. So I do have to rebalance the gimbal if and when I add that 
on there. And the biggest downside to that little adapter is that if you take the ND filter out, there's a big gaping hole right there, so dust and all that sort of stuff can go right into your sensor. So I've heard of people putting gaff tape on there and kind of leaving the gaff tape. So if you do need to go inside really fast and you don't have time to switch from the ND adapter back to the regular adapter, you can just pull the little ND filter insert out, cover it up with your gaff tape and your, you know, your hole is covered. It's not the most elegant solution. I do think that they sell a clear insert that you can put in there. So if you take the ND insert out, you can put a clear one in, but it's kind of expensive and you'd have to carry that around with you and it's not very convenient. So most times it's very rare that I'm going to have to go that quickly from shooting outside in the bright sun to inside. It is inconvenient to have to take you know, the lens off, take the adapter off, put the new adapter on, put the lens back on, rebalance the gimbal. So that's not necessarily the most elegant solution. But again, I do have the option of just pulling the ND insert out and going from there. So that's pretty much all I have to say about ND filters. And that's a little look into the nerdy side of my brain. Um, hopefully, again, hopefully this is interesting to you guys out there. Uh, I would say, okay, so the last like piece of advice I would leave you with is that if you shoot with, again, not the EOS R, not a cinema camera with built-in ND filters, and you're saying, okay, I want to use ND filters, what should I do? What's going to be the best option for me? Especially if you're shooting weddings out there, I would say you've got two options. I do think that the Mapbox thing is cool to look into. I would definitely consider it. Again, the the only downside to that would be if you shoot with prime lenses like I do, and you shoot with lots of different lenses and you're swap, swapping lenses all the time, the Mapbox thing becomes a little bit unrealistic because it would be very inconvenient to switch from one to the next to the next to the next. But the more I think about it, the more I think that, okay, when I'm shooting portraits, you know, of the bride and groom, I could definitely shoot that all with primarily with one lens, right? You know, you probably have a favorite lens, whether that be maybe like a 50 mil or an 85 or whatever your kind of go-to portrait lens is, and you're doing something outside like that, then yeah, I would get a ND filter for your favorite lens or if you have a bunch of lenses that are the same filter thread and then you have maybe like one or two odd ducks, I would just get the ND filter that fits those ones. I would get the Polar Pro variable ND uh, Peter McKinnon version. I just think that Polar Pro makes some really, really awesome, awesome products. And those, again, so with any filter that you put in front of your camera, you wanna invest good money into that. If you buy a cheap filter and put it on top of your $2,000 lens, you're not gonna be doing yourself any sort of favor. So make sure you're investing in filters. They are expensive, but I think it's a worthwhile investment. So if I were you and I was shooting weddings and I really wanted to use ND filters, I would probably buy that screw on filter for my favorite lens or the lens you have the most of the same filter thread. If you shoot with zoom lenses, then you're good. Just like pick your favorite zoom lens, one that you use most often for portraits or stuff that's outside and use that. The map box thing is cool again, because it has, it does have those step up rings. So I think that it's going to be important for you to pick and choose the parts of the day where an ND filter is going to really help you. If you're, you know, you don't really need an ND filter on your groom angle for the ceremony where the groom is literally not moving. Would it be, well, should, you, should you have ND filters on all of your cameras? Ideally, yes. Again, if you have them built in the C100s, then yeah, go ahead and go crazy. Use your ND filters. It's going to look better, but it's going to be much less noticeable in that shot of the groom just standing there still giving his vows. Then it's going to be of the bride and groom doing portraits, gimbals, moving, all those types of things. So I would say to pick and choose wisely, especially if it's something that seems overwhelming to you, choose an ND filter that fits your 
your favorite lens and just kind of accept that you're not going to switch lenses that often. Or if you do switch lenses, you may have to crank your shutter speed for that one shot. But again, if you try and choose a shot, a wide shot or something, maybe you have the ND filter on your 85, but you want a really cool epic 24 mil shot maybe your 24 mil shot will have a high shutter speed and that's just okay. Or shoot that 24 mil shot at a higher aperture, right? So maybe shoot it at 5.6, then your shutter speed, instead of being a one one thousandth of a second is only one two fiftieth of a second. And, you know, we're kind of making it less of a problem in terms of the motion blur thing. Um, that's what I used to do actually on my when I shot the A6300, I would shoot it a lot at 5.6 because on the gimbal, it's more important to have things in focus and that shallow depth of field isn't really gonna get much with those wide apertures. You're not gonna get a ton of bokeh or anything like that. So be smart, be strategic, shoot your wide shots maybe at a higher aperture so that you can have a lower shutter speed and just get the ND filter for your for your portrait lens, for your favorite portrait lens and just be okay with that. At the end of the day, our bride's going to be like booking you or not booking you because you have proper shutter speeds or not proper shutter speeds or whatever. I don't know. I mean, again, quality for all these different things is subjective. Do brides know anything about 10-bit color? No. Do brides know anything about 4K? No. Could we like sit here and debate all day whether or not these little minute differences are important? Sure. Again, I think it's really obvious. I like using the ND filters because they're built in and that's part of the reason why I shoot with C100s. But again, when I shot with a camera that didn't have an ND filter for a long time, I didn't use it. And the EOS R, because it has the built-in ND filter, that's part of the main reasons I'm using it. I don't know if I would put, maybe now that I have this map box, I would use that on a wedding day. But I don't know if I would put a filter on my ND filters for a wedding day. I really don't. But I just wanted to make sure that I made this video to explain why it matters. It does matter. It does make a difference. The question really comes down to, does it matter enough to you? Do you care and do you want to put the time and the effort into using ND filters? So there you go. That's my rant. That's my soapbox. Hopefully that's helpful to some of you guys. And hopefully you like this sort of deep dive into a YouTube video topic. I'm going to hopefully do more of these in the future, especially on topics like this, where there's a lot of depth that I could go into that I just don't have time to go into on a YouTube video. Maybe not for every single YouTube video, but especially ones like this, we're going to be doing these. So let me know what you thought. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, go ahead and shoot me a message again on Instagram. It's at Tyler Harrington. I love chatting with you guys in the DMs. So head on over there, shoot me a message if you have anything interesting you'd like to say about this. If you have any topics or any questions that you have that you'd either want to see a YouTube video about or a podcast episode about, let me know. I'm always down to answer as many questions as possible. My main goal with this YouTube channel and with this podcast is to really just talk about things that I'm super excited about and super passionate about so I can sit down and talk for 40 some odd minutes with very little preparation about something because it's just something that I think about and and have analyzed and talked about a lot. So yeah, hopefully you guys find this interesting. If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening and uh, you're the best. This has been Ty from Ty's Tech Line and we'll see you next time.